I apologize for this cord. I knew it was doing that last week, and then I just forgot all about it. I try to wear them out because this little dangly cord here costs $200, and so I try to use it till the last minute, but this is the last minute, but we'll, we'll, we'll get through today. If it gets to be bad, I'll just take it off, and the guys can put me on. Well, that's on anyway. Okay. Double it. Stereo. Please take your Bibles and turn to Matthew 18, 1 to 6. Matthew 18, 1 to 6 is where we're at here this morning. Matthew 18. Um, I've had a few people mention that they're having trouble following me, filling out the notes that I'm not saying anything, or some of the things that are there. I think I do, but I'm going to be a little more clear where I'm at, okay, on some of this stuff. Is that, would that be helpful? Oh, put your hands down. Okay, all right, no. All right. I will do that. Um, and so if you'll uh, follow the part there at the beginning in the bulletin that says introduction, that's where I'm at. <laughs> all right. <clears throat> I want to begin this way. Society, and I'm talking about society at large, society as a whole, society is full of incongruities, uh, those issues of inequity. And what we're talking about there is that in society, there are all kinds of things that are not matching up, and there's all kinds of things where there's not equality, and there's issues in our society because of that. And that can be demonstrated in the condition of people around the world, not just the United States, but around the world. In the world, we have things like this. We have the haves and we have the have-nots. We have the pretty and then we have the plain. We see the great people of the world and we ignore the unknown. There are intellectuals and then there are the elementary. We have the famous as well as the forgotten. There are those who desire importance, work hard all their life to gain it, but only end up with mediocrity. There have also been those who put on humility and they have attained greatness in the world. Those who attain are the object of envy by those who do not achieve that status. And one of the differences is that person chose not to put on humility. Even the Lord's disciples felt like at times that they were not achieving the position of privilege to walk beside the Lord as one of his inner circle and where he was concerned. For instance, out of the 12 people, and we read about this earlier, out of the 12 people that were his disciples, Jesus picked only three of them to go up onto the Mount of Transfiguration. That's it. There's 12 people, three get to go. What do you think was going on in the minds of the nine that did not get to go up on the mountain? Like, well, Lord, why can't I go? I want to see what you're going to do up there. Why, why Peter, James, and John? What's going on with that? And those 12 were invited not to experience the transfiguration, one of the hallmarks of our faith and our belief. And many of us have asked this question, what must I do to be somebody in this world? What must I do to be somebody? Oh, you look at the world standards, you look at what they have to say, and you have to write a bunch of books, and you have to be a college professor, and you have to have two or three doctorates, and you have to have this, and you have to have that, <clears throat> and you think, I just can't compete. Some people have asked, how can I be great? What makes a person great? How can I be great? What are we to aim to strike? What are we, what are we, what are we going to aim to strike significance in our life? And in today's text... The question we are dealing with is this. Who then is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? 
And you know who was thinking that? The disciples. <laughs> They're always talking about that. Sometimes they lag behind Jesus on a trip. He's up here walking along. He can tell they're back there. He also knows what they're saying. It's not a problem. And he can tell that they're talking about which one of them is going to be the greatest in the kingdom of God. Who do you think is, a, you know, going to sit with Jesus on his throne? You know, the nearest one. And then there's a mom that jumps the gun and says, I'm going to go ask Jesus to make my two sons sit, sit on his right and his left. And they can be the greatest that there ever was. Have you ever wondered about your place in the kingdom? Have you ever wondered if you matter to God? Have you ever wondered if I'm really even important to him? And am I going to be important in the life to come? Well, this is what Jesus deals with today. So let's turn to the text, Matthew 18, 1 to 6. And I'm reading from the New American. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus and they said, okay, so um, we, we are just basically got off the Mount of Transfiguration. We're down here on the ground, and the Son of Man is uh, talking about being delivered in the hands of uh, unbelievers, and that's a serious issue, and you wouldn't think the next topic is going to be, hey, guys, which one of us do you think is the greatest? Nobody in the group ever said, well, I think it's Peter, or I think it's you. They all were thinking, it should be me, right? At that time, the disciples came to Jesus and said, Who then is greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And he called a child to himself, and he set him before them. So he gets a little boy. And he said, Truly I say to you, unless you are converted and become like children, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. And one of the lessons that we're going to pick up from that is that pride bars the entrance to heaven. Our personal pride or the pride of others can bar entrance into heaven. Whoever then humbles himself as a child, he is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Now, I want you to get a flavor of the fact that Jesus here was asked a question, who's the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Now he's talking about how people get into heaven. He never really says in this passage, okay, so here you need to understand the bottom line, this is the greatest person in heaven except for one thing that gives us a clue. And it's the next verse. Whoever then humbles himself... As this child, or like this child, is in status in this world, he is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Well, what does that mean? What are you talking about? And whoever receives one such child, all right, meaning one who has repented in my name, receives me. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to stumble, it would be better for him to have a heavy millstone hung around his neck and be drowned in the depths of the sea. Ouch. Wow. And by the way, we're not just talking about little kids. We're not just talking about the Iwana program. We're talking about anyone who humbles himself as a child. It can be a 90-year-old, a 100-year-old, a 20-year-old, a 30-year-old. Anybody who humbles himself as a child. If you get in their way between God and them, it'd be better off if you just went and tied a millstone around your neck. So let's look at this, uh, starting with uh, point one, verse one. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus and asked the question, who's greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And so that's the, uh, that's the issue with this particular point. Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Now, it seems from other similar gospel accounts that the disciples have been talking about this issue among themselves. Oh, have you ever been with a group of people and uh, you got around, you're sitting around a table, maybe after you eat or something, and say, hey, which one of you disposes, which one of us do you think is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? <laughs> I bet that's never happened. I bet that's never come up. We know too much to do stuff like that, right? But the disciples, they're still learning, and they're asking the question, who's greatest? Jesus knows they've been talking about it, and this isn't the first time. 
It's something that uh, they're interested in. Why? Because you're going to be leaders in a kingdom and you're going to sit on 12 thrones and you're going to judge the 12 tribes of Israel and that's a big deal. So now they're thinking, okay, we want to be at the throne closest to Jesus. They know they're headed for a, a relationship with Jesus in his kingdom. What are you and I headed for if it's not the same thing? So uh, we may have some of those same leanings to ask, uh, where is my position in the kingdom? And Jesus is going to say, you just need to be happy that you're in the kingdom. Now, the nearest instance that may have sparked this discussion, we said, is back in chapter 17, 1 to 7. And that's where Jesus uh, chose the guys that got to go up on the mountain and see Moses and Elijah in their, uh, in their uh, temporary bodies come back and speak with Jesus about what Jesus was going to go through on the cross. And they didn't get to go. They had to wait down at the, at the base of the mountain. And that's probably why they're thinking about this again. Uh, because they didn't win. They're out. Only, uh, only three got to go. The three disciples who were chosen had the privilege of making the trip up the mountain to see Jesus in his glory. Wouldn't you and I like to have been there? Absolutely. Nine were left out of that inner circle of privilege. And that's what they're feeling. Have you ever known what it feels like to be left out? When someone is choosing those who will be on their team uh, or who will get to go uh, with that person somewhere special, whatever that person is. I don't know what, what the kids do now, but we used to be let loose at recess to go out and play football. And, of course, the toughest two guys on the whole, in the whole class, they got to stand around and say, okay, I'm going to choose. And, and Jimmy over here, he's going to choose. And so you just wait and you think, oh, here I go again. I get to be last again. And, or they're going to flip a coin to see if someone, who has to take me or something like that. You know, uh, and you don't feel good. It's not a good feeling to feel that way. Nine disciples are left behind to feel that kind of pain and disappointment. It's a big deal. I say that because they are human. They have not attained the uh, sainthood that they're all looking forward to. And they haven't done that yet anyway. They have today in our day, but back then they didn't. What would you have felt? What would you be talking about with the other nine people that were left and they didn't get to go up? And you had to stay there. It's hard to see others gaining privileged status when we're left behind. Usually it's a pride problem that we have. Uh, one of the elements of pride is that I get upset when somebody else is promoted instead of me. Uh, that's an element of pride. And it's hard to see others gain a privileged status when you don't get it. And people have been nasty because they didn't get it to those people. They've been upset because they didn't get it. They made trouble at their job place because they didn't get the position they thought they ought to get. Uh, I, I don't know who that guy was in that, uh, in that particular clip that we had this morning. I, I could find out, I guess. But I thought, what a, what a great picture of somebody uh, who is being a servant, who is being humble. And the guy's, you know, playing basketball down there in the warehouse, and they just kick over a can of pop, and they, they just walk off. Uh, he'll get it. That kind of hurt betrays an element of pride in us that's uh, not fitting a disciple of Christ. Here they are thinking the world owes them something, and they're thinking like the world and its trappings of status and power. If you turn over just a minute to Matthew chapter 20 and verses 20 to 24. We see this trapping uh, in full view when uh, the mother of the sons of Zebedee, verse 20, came to Jesus with her sons bowing down and making request of him. 
You think the boys weren't talking about this to their mom and said, boy, we'd like to have a great place in the kingdom. We think we're, you know, two of the greatest, mom. Mom takes it into her own hands. And so she comes bowing down and requests of him, verse 21, and he said to her, what do you wish? And she said to him, command that in your kingdom those two sons of mine, I'm sorry, these two sons of mine may sit one on your right and one on your left. But Jesus answered, you don't know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I am about to drink? He means his death. And they said to him, we are able. And he said to them, my cup you will drink, but to sit on my right hand and my left, this is not mine to give, but it is for those to whom it has been prepared by my father. And notice he doesn't tell us who they are. And hearing this, the ten became indignant with the two brothers, because they're trying to get a leg up, right? But Jesus called them and said to them, uh, you know how the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them, and great men exercise authority of the, over them. It is not this way among you. But whoever wishes to become great among you shall be the servant. The servant. When was the last time you served just for the sake of serving? Verses 2 to 4 in point 2. The greatest in the kingdom is the one who humbles himself like a child. So it's time for an object lesson with the king. A lesson about where true greatness comes from. We've already uh, talked about a couple of things that are involved in that. So Jesus chooses to set a child in their midst. Now you need to think about the fact that in this culture, a child is no big deal. A child is not that important. A child doesn't have any rights to speak of in this culture. But Jesus takes... A little boy, doesn't tell us how old, but sets him in their midst. And if that were today, you might expect that if Jesus is going to talk about how to attain greatness uh, in, a, in a group lesson, he might come and get the president to sit in the middle of the group, or a king, or a great scientist, or a great athlete, or a general, or somebody like that. Jesus chooses a little boy. We all know that it should have been sufficient for them to just look at Jesus, how he lived, what he did, and say that's the quintessential illustration of leadership. That's as high as it gets. It's Jesus. Now, it's not going to be long from now. He's going to wash the disciples' feet, and that's going to make them feel uneasy because in their hearts they wouldn't have done that in the first place. In fact, none of them did until Jesus did it. Was there ever a person greater or more humble than him? The answer is no. But Jesus is going to try to get this point across with a little person. And uh, he's going to wash the disciples' feet later to just put some cement on that lesson. And the point is, well, that would be the answer to their question. Jesus and his humility. But they don't seem to be getting it, so Jesus does this. He chooses a young boy for the lesson. Now in verse 3, first of all, those who are going uh, to enter the kingdom must go through a conversion. And I want you to notice what it says, all right? And uh, they're talking about how you become great in the kingdom. And he says, truly I say unto you, unless you are converted and become like children. So he's talking about a change in your belief and becoming humble. Everybody has to humble themselves if they're going to come to God and, and just admit, I don't have what it takes, I don't have what it costs, I can't get into heaven on my own. And I'm humbling myself, Jesus, and I'm trusting in you. Conversion means to experience an inward change 
to make a turn in your direction. And the direction used to be, I think I can get myself in by my good works and living a good life. And the answer is that's false, it's fake, it isn't going to work, it's a lie from, from Satan. That's not how you get into heaven. You repent of your abilities and you say, I'm turning to trust in Jesus and Jesus alone. To this point, Dr. Turner said, and I'm quoting, it is a renunciation of human prestige or status and accepting the value of the kingdom. So he's saying, well, what is, what is humility really like in a conversion? It, it's, it's a renunciation of human prestige and status. I have none before God. I have none. And so Jesus says, a little boy who represents their society, he's got nothing either. He's got no prestige. He's nothing great. He's just a little kid. And that's the way they looked at it. And then Dr. Blomberg says, thus, disciples must turn away from the status and humble themselves like children. Boy, could our society use that. A child in Jesus' day had no status in the society, had no rights according to the laws of the land. And to demonstrate who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven, Jesus shows them one who is least in the kingdom of men. If you were seeking the path to being great in the kingdom, you probably didn't think that's the way to go. And this goes against the world's standards of what the world says is great. Humility has little to do with greatness in the world system. In fact, the most arrogant people we know uh, are often leaders of great uh, companies and, uh, and political leaders, not all. It has everything to do with the master's view of what it means to be a servant and what it means to be humble. Probably not the path the disciples had in mind. They still hadn't caught on. Here we find that the nine who missed out on the transfiguration had a great opportunity to demonstrate kingdom greatness by not having this discussion when Jesus got off the mountain where they didn't get to go and be a part. They had an opportunity to shine by being what Jesus says, this is what I'm looking for in a servant. But they blew it. And they blew it with this question and the desire that they had to want to know who's the greatest. The question reveals that they just don't get it, not yet. They had the privilege of position of humility, but they were desiring the honor of status. And it should have been a race to humility, not a prideful push to position and notoriety. Pride is such a wicked thing. And usually we're the last ones to know that we have it. Jesus points this out rather clearly with the nine. In the life with Jesus that we want to live, it's not about position or power. It's about humility and service. It is not about position and power. It's about humility and service. Jesus would say, show me your humblest servant and I will show you greatness. And by the way, that greatness means you are a member of the kingdom of Christ. And when you look at the passage, yeah, he said humility, but what it all boils down to is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven are those who made it into the kingdom of heaven. <laughs> and that's uh, underneath this whole passage. And then the third point, verses 5 to 6. We learned this, receive the humble. Don't cause them to stumble. You'd be better off dead if you did. 
I took a lot of time to try to rhyme something there. I hope you appreciate that. Receive the humble because, and don't ca- or don't cause them to stumble. You'd be better off dead if you did. That's pretty serious stuff. You know what he's talking about? Getting in the way of people that are seeking Jesus. Getting in the way of letting them come to Jesus. You realize that's what Jesus said in Matthew 23, which we haven't got to yet, but he said in Matthew 23, you guys are barring the entrance to the kingdom of heaven from people trying to get in. You are, you are making them not go in. Can we do that, apparently? Should we do it? No. The greatest in the kingdom is like a, this little boy. So we need to be uh, very intentional about how we treat the lowly among us. Now, he's not, get this, he's not just talking about little kids. Yes, we have to be careful how we treat little kids. Yes, they have way more status in our, in our culture than what they did in Jesus' day, yes. But he's talking about a little child who has the humility that is needed to get into the kingdom of God. So he's talking about here anybody who is repenting of their sins. And not just little kids. Little kids can and they do trust Jesus as their Savior. So one of the things we learn from this, not just about kids, but don't overlook the meek among you. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Don't overlook the ones that don't mind being overlooked. (laughs) Don't overlook the ones that are in the shadows. Don't overlook the ones that aren't out front. Don't overlook the ones that others have esteemed to be lower in status than they are. So in verse 5, to receive such a child in the name of Jesus is to actually receive Jesus. It's not just about kids. Dr. Keener said, embracing the weak is to embrace Christ. We are to welcome the nobodies, those without status or respect in our society. Humility notices these folks. So the issue is, do we? You know, the Lord said, I came to save the weak of this world, not the powerful. That doesn't mean the powerful can't get in, but he came for those who are nobodies. And if we're, if we're uh, I say, humble enough to admit it, that's all of us. God is not looking to fill the courts of heaven with those considered great by the world. Just because you're great in the world, just because you might be an Einstein or somebody like that, does not mean you get a seat in heaven. You have to humble yourself. Even somebody like that, humble yourself if you want to be with Jesus. Jesus is not running some sort of a club for the elite of the earth. They may join, but to do so, they need to undergo a conversion. Talked about in verse 3. Give up their, their, dis, their disbelief in Jesus and start believing that I have no status, he has it. No one based on personal status gets into the kingdom of heaven. No one. I've heard people say of great people, if anybody made it to heaven, he did. I say, well, he didn't know Jesus as his Savior. He didn't. How would you like to be so intelligent, so smart, that the world bows down to you and all of your uh, philosophical theories or your scientific theories, and yet you get to before the judge of all the earth, and he says, I don't even know you. It's not about that. God is serious about how we treat the humble. I think that's what he's saying here. So much so that there's a penalty for not doing it this way. 
Dr. Turner here says, causing Jesus' little ones to sin is contrasted with receiving them hospitably. The word stumble in verse 6. Whoever causes one of these little ones, meaning uh, the ones who respond in faith, to believe in me to stumble, it would be better for him to have a heavy millstone hung around his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. Stumble means to offend or to cause to fall, to be brought down by a downfall, or to cause someone to sin, which would be not trusting Christ as their Savior. We don't want to live a lifestyle that causes these meek ones to fall away from Jesus. I once had a young person tell me, don't ask me who they are because I wouldn't tell you, but I once had a young person tell me when we were having a discussion together uh, about issues they were having in their life as pretty much an adult, they said this, they said, and I'm trying to quote as best as I can remember, said that the only time while they were growing up that they ever felt safe and cared for was when they got to come to Alana. <laughs> Anybody want to sign up to help with Awana? <laughs> or junior high or high school youth group? Or Bible study? Imagine those little kids. What in the world is their home like? You folks changed that person's life. Do you see every one of the meek ones who comes your way? Do you notice them? Talk to them? Show them they're important and wanted? Have you ever turned away anyone that Jesus is trying to turn in? Do we secretly despise what he has openly desired? These are all issues we have to deal with. In the second part of verse 6, well, here is Jesus' mandate for the justice that it merits to do such a thing if you turn one of them away. He says it would be better for that person to be drowned if they pull a stunt like that. It really needs to make us reconsider any act of causing one of these little ones to stumble. If you have a choice between causing a meek one to fall away from Christ or to be drowned with a or, or drowned with a millstone around your neck, Jesus said, get this, choose the millstone if that's what you're going to do. Dr. Keener illustrates some of those who turn others away from Jesus through uh, things that include arrogance. And he actually mentioned arrogant university professors. And I've had uh, plenty of those in my life. Torturers who torture to enforce Islamic law and religion. Or gossips within the church. Or those who uh, don't know that salvation is by faith alone uh, through Christ alone and they try to make it something else. All those could be turning people away, especially on these uh, ridiculous stuff going on in these secular campuses across America where there are actively uh, professors trying to turn people away from faith in Christ to perversion. Uh, there will be a special place for them in eternity. Here's some applications for us before we get into uh, communion. The first one is this. 
The question is, who do we imitate to find greatness in the kingdom? You know, I always say uh, my allergies are bad, but they're never good, so why bring it up, right? There. I'm going to Purell before I handle your communion, okay? You can thank me later. Uh, Point one was this. Who do we imitate to find greatness in the kingdom? Jesus' answer, a child. Secondly, and this is a quote from Dr. Turner, discipleship depends solely on the love and mercy of the Heavenly Father, not on status. Thirdly, it's about serving the Father. It's not about seeking position in the kingdom of God dry my eyes here so I can read this last passage in Mark 10 where Jesus gets down to more of what we're used to in this discussion talking about it plainly Mark chapter 10 and with this we'll close this section of our our worship 13 to 16 I may read a little further and they were bringing children to him so that he might touch them but the disciples rebuked them. That's that status thing we were talking about. But when Jesus saw this, he was indignant, and he said to them, Permit the children to come to me. Do not hinder them, for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child will not enter it at all. And he took one of them in his arms and he began blessing them, laying his hands on them. I think I wouldn't quit there. Children are great examples of what you do to be great in the kingdom of God. We're going to turn our attention to a time of fellowship around the Lord's table, and I'll be using Luke chapter 22 for our time. I'll just go ahead and ask the uh, elders and Becky if they'll come up. and I'll make sure my hands don't have any germs on it for you. So if you're following with me, it's in Luke 22, and it uh, actually starts in verse 14. When the hour had come, he reclined at the table and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I say to you, I shall never again eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And when he had taken the cup and given thanks, he said, Take this and share it among yourselves. For I say to you, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine from now on until until the kingdom of God comes. And when he had taken some bread and given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he took the cup also after they had eaten, saying, This cup which is poured out is for you. is the new covenant in my blood. And then he talked about uh, Judas and his betrayal. This table is where we fellowship together, not just with ourselves, but spiritually with Jesus Christ. And we believe he's always with us and in our midst. And what we're saying is that I belong to that community. And I'm taking this cup, which is a cup of blessing,
to remind myself of the commitment I made and the covenant I have with Jesus Christ. So anybody who has trusted Christ as his or her Savior uh, is free to partake of this meal. We call that open communion. Open, closed communion would be in a church where if you're not a member, you can't take communion. We don't do that. If you belong to Jesus, you can. And it's about our fellowship. When I was a kid in a Baptist church, I thought it was all about introspection and guilt. So I just didn't look forward to communion because it's just all about, well, i got to get this sin, confess that sin. What if I forgot this one? And I'm thinking all the things Jesus already took care of and I don't have to worry about. I just want to be in fellowship with him. I hope that will be yours as well. I'm going to ask Steve if he'll pray and ask the blessing on the bread.
With this we give thanks to Yahweh, the God of heaven, Yeshua, our Savior, and the Holy Spirit. Brad, you want to ask a blessing on the cup, please? represents a cup on that Passover night and it represented the blood of Jesus so when we drink of this we are saying we're a member of the covenant through his blood do this in remembrance of him <clears throat> excuse me
precious blood of the Lamb, we thank you, uh, Lord, uh, for what you have done for us, for the shed blood, for the forgiveness of sins, uh, that we can spend eternity in heaven. So we just want to thank you for that here this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.